Hello, and welcome to the 2006, August 2006 podcast of Ordinary Means. You'll find us on the web at OrdinaryMeans.com. I'm your host, Sean Nolan, sitting here at the table uh, back this month with Matt Bowling. Nice to be here. And Peter Jones. Good to be here. Hey, Peter and Matt. Well, we are sitting around here at the table today talking about prayer meetings, or at least we're going to be talking about prayer meetings over the next 45 minutes or so. Uh, and maybe the first question that comes to mind when we think of the idea of a prayer meeting is, is what is it scripturally? Where do we get the idea in Scripture of a prayer meeting? Certainly it's something that a lot of churches have done, as we'll uh, talk about today. Uh, it's something that Spurgeon uh, perhaps more than any other pastor, has emphasized as being uh, the heartbeat of the church. Uh, let me quote from, uh, this is not Spurgeon, but this is a uh, from a little pamphlet by a man named Errol Hulse, and he writes this, It's said that the weekly prayer meeting is the spiritual barometer for any local church. You can tell with a fair degree of accuracy what the church is like by the demeanor or substance of the weekly prayer meeting. Is there genuine evangelistic concern? If so, it will be expressed in the prayers. Is there a heartfelt longing for the conversion of unconverted family members? If so, it is sure to, it is sure to surface there. Is there a world vision and a fervent desire for revival in the glory of our Redeemer among the nations in the world? Such a burden cannot be suppressed. Is there, a heart, is there heart agony about famine and war and the need for the gospel of peace among the suffering multitudes of mankind? The church prayer meeting will answer that question. And so he goes on and on in this, uh, in this little pamphlet where he argues, indeed, the character of the church prayer meeting is going to tell you something of the character of the church itself, which raises this question, why then don't we see prayer meetings in Scripture? Or do we see prayer meetings in Scripture? Matt, Peter? I think we do see prayer meetings in Scripture, and I think it flows. We didn't talk about this as a text before we went on the air, but it's interesting. Maybe we've talked about this in previous podcasts if you listen to it, but when you get into Acts 6 and you find the apostles and you find that the... Uh, the Hellenistic Jews, the Greek Jews, uh, were jealous um, because their widows were being overlooked. Uh, the the twelve, the apostles, brought together uh, the congregation and they they instituted what we know now as the diaconate. These were the first uh, deacons, if you will. But why was it that they did that? What is it that was at the heart of the apostles? And it was this. So this is uh, Acts chapter six and verse four. Uh, they Well, I'll start from verse 3. Therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task of dealing with the widows. But we will devote ourselves. Notice the orientation here, the words, the order of them. We will devote ourselves to, what do you think the next word is? Most of us think the next yeah. word is preaching. Preaching. It's prayer. It's prayer. Yeah. Hey, you we read, will devote. We Peter, will, Peter, Peter, read, Peter read it before. You read ahead, <laughs> but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Now, now that, so are we safe to say relationship comes before study? Is that is that what we're talking about here, or am I making too broad of a generalization? I don't know. What do you think, Peter? I, I don't I think I, Warfield uh, his little book on um, the theological life of. The religious life of theological students make the point that those two don't have to be divorced from one another. The pr prayer and the study go together. And in fact, um, in Spurgeon's lectures to my students, 
he has a significant portion in there on private prayer of the pastor and the public prayer of the pastor, two chapters back-to-back on that. And I highly recommend that book. And he talks about praying over the text, praying over mm. the text, praying mm-hmm. through the text. So I don't think we should see those necessarily as priority, one versus the other or one over the other, but as intimately leaked organically. These are two things that must go together. And think of Daniel. The reason he began to pray was because he knew the prophecies of Jeremiah. You know, in Daniel chapter 9, the reason he began to pray is because the 70 years were up. Right. And right. so the word pushes us to prayer, and I think that's the case certainly with, with here, here in Acts chapter 6. But, but certainly reacting to that, the, the quote from uh, Errol Hulse there that Sean read at the beginning, if we're honest and we look at most of our churches, mm. especially if your church is, you know, in the strand of the guys who are sitting around the table where we, we preach the Bible, and we have a lot of teaching ministries and lots of opportunities. We have Bible studies and even the small groups that we have, whatever form they take, if you've got any, they center around the Bible as we spend a lot of time in the ministry of the Word, as we should. Very education-centric. Very education-centric. Mm-hmm. But in what are we hoping the effectiveness of that ministry of the Word? What, what's our hope that that will be effective? Does it just work because we do it? I think the apostles understood that it doesn't just work if we do it, but it works as we pray and ask God to use it. And thus, how the apostles saw those absolutely intimately tied together. How did we lose it? How did we lose it? I'm reminded of uh, John Piper, who uh, always, and I think we've said this before, always prays before he gets into the pulpit. Not just in terms of praying corporately, but he has a very specific prayer that he prays every time uh, he's about to get up into the pulpit and where he asks the Lord that very thing. Essentially saying, Lord, take me out of the picture mm. and, mm-hmm. and you be the picture here this morning. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. We need, we need more pastors like that. Mm. Absolutely. Because, because if we do have more pastors like that, if we have pastors who see it as the ministry of, uh, as prayer and the ministry of the word, not the ministry of the word and prayer, then I think we're going to have churches that are more prayerful because they're going to be following in the footsteps of their pastor. Who is that way? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And that begs the question, why are our churches not more prayerful? You've just touched on one. I'm glad you called it begging the question because prayer is begging, <laughs> it is begging. In, in many senses. We jump there. right. Well, actually, the, the standards are the larger catechism says prayer is an offering up of our desires unto God in the name of Christ by the help of his spirit with the confession of our sins and thankful acknowledgement of his mercies. And if you want to look at a really extensive section on prayer in the standard, you can look at the Westminster Larger Catechism 178 through 186. They okay. do. The shorter catechism only has two questions and then goes into the Lord's Prayer. But the Larger Catechism has a large section on the necessity of prayer, why we pray, what we're supposed to pray about, things of that sort. As does, I believe, the Heidelberg has an excellent section on, yeah, on one, prayer. 116 to 118 oh, in Heidelberg. Heidelberg yeah. Right. Now you're saying it begs the question. Oh, why do we not pray more? And this this doesn't just talk. This isn't just about the church. I mean, why doesn't the church? I mean, corporately pray more. Well, we, we don't pray more because it just matters what we do. It, it, I mean, if we just do it, then God will work. Yeah, <laughs> it's all about methodology here. No, that's, I'm, I was uh, tongue, my tongue is firmly planted it in my cheek but yeah, sure. isn't that what the American church believes and yeah it is we are totally of uh, lack the belief 
and I came up, I didn't come up with this term. Matt just informed me that someone else has stolen it from me prior to me coming <laughs> up with it. <laughs> Is this like Back to the Future? Yeah, yeah, exactly. But I think a lot of us are functional deists. We function. A person who's a deist is someone, you know, the old illustration winds the clock, sets it off, or winds the watch, sets it off, and goes someplace else. A lot of us. That, God, that we are like that. Yeah, we're. God created the world, yep. wound it up. Put us and out then there. He's he's at Starbucks. He's at Starbucks, exactly. So <laughs> a lot of us function that way in prayer. And one thing you will find in in, the, in your study of the scriptures is that prayer is often precipitated by uh, a need. Hmm. The, Christ in the garden is a prime example. But we also have Hezekiah, which I think is a great example, where the Assyrians bring this threat against him. Sennacherib brings this threat, and Isaiah or Hezekiah takes the actual paper into the temple and prays before God with the paper. So it's precipitated by certain events that are crossed. And the assumption is there, Hezekiah is saying, Lord, you can change this. I mean, the assumption is that God is working and does still work in the world. And for many of us, I honestly don't think a lot of people, although they wouldn't say this with their mouth, most of us live as if God does not still work, as if he is not still alive. And and he's just we kind of have this methodology type thing and 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 those things going on, and prayer once we understand that God is still moving and God is still working and living and active, uh, then our prayer life also becomes oh well you know well let me bring this before God and let me not bring the trifling things I mean all those are important but let me bring the big things before God the onslaught of homosexuality how many of us pray against that but how many of us honestly believe that God is going to stop the onslaught of homosexuality in this country I think most of us hmm. have kind of given up on that why why do we not believe that God can answer that prayer or wants to answer that prayer it, it really does change things if we believe God is working, if that is our view, if that is our theology uh, of God, is that he is a God who is presently at work, uh, controlling, moving, uh, creating, uh, then not only are we going to uh, see God as the reason to pray, is because here is somebody who does have the power to do what we cannot, but we are also going to see God as the one who gives us the reasons to pray. That God is the one, so in, that, in the example you just gave of bringing the paper into the temple, you know, God was the one who brought about the circumstances that brought about the need and thus drove. You know, God is the one who puts us on our knees, is what I'm saying. Absolutely, and we, we often miss what God wants us to pray about because we don't, we don't think it's from his hand. You know, mm -hmm. I mean, Sodom and Gomorrah is a good example. Abraham knew God was judging this. He knew what was happening, and he pleaded with God, and God answered his prayer by rescuing Lot. I mean, God didn't ignore his prayer. God answered Abraham's prayer. Lot was saved because of Abraham's prayer. I mean, obviously, ultimately, because of God chose to save Lot, but Abraham prayed. And Well, it's interesting that the angels, God sends the angels to Abraham before he goes down yes. to Sodom and Gomorrah, he says, you, "Will I withhold my my thoughts from Abraham?" Abraham, yeah. Well, I think that this passion that we see exhibited in Acts six in the apostles, you see, preceded. You see that this this is an example of a passion that they had. You see, a few chapters earlier in Acts, we're talking about where do we get this prayer meeting from. We sort of have this vague idea that um, you know, if God is at work, and I personally relate with Him. Um, you know, that, that prayer is talking to God. This is what Sean and I learned being disciples in Campus Crusade, and essentially it is. It's reverent speaking with the king, praising him, thanking him. We'll talk about the content of prayers a little bit later. But why? Why pray? 
And in Acts 4, you find the situation where they'd been brought, as Peter was just saying, into a tremendously difficult situation where they saw, if you will, the way I put it, they saw the score. Um, in Acts 4, uh, Peter and John are out and they're preaching and lots of people are coming to, to, uh, to salvation and, uh, and the, a man's healed. And so they bring Peter and John before the council and, uh, and they accuse him and they tell him not to speak in Jesus' name and they, they didn't have anything that they could accuse him of to punish them and so they let him go. And you would think that Peter and John would walk away and go, yes! We've been vindicated. We're doing the right thing. Let's go do it some more. And they don't. <laughs> they don't chalk up the victory. They don't go over to the board and put a notch in their belt and go, Whoosh. we got it. We won. Where they go is back to their knees. <laughs> and they do what we find, one of the few corporate prayer meetings. And the content of their prayer, I'll read it, because uh, it puts most of our prayers to shame. This is uh, Acts chapter 4 and verse 23. When they had been released, they went back to their own assumed companions and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. And when they heard this, the gathered group, when they heard this, they lifted their voices to God with one accord and said, O Lord, it is you who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them, who by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of our father David your servant said, Why did the Gentiles, why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples devise futile things? The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you united both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. And now, Lord, take note of their threats and grant that your bondservants may speak your word with all confidence, while you extend your hand to heal and signs and wonders take place through the name of your holy servant Jesus. Now notice uh, there's a couple of results from this prayer. One that's immediate and one that's ongoing. And when they had prayed, the place where they had gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they began to speak the word of God with boldness. And there's some, there's some ongoing fruit that you'll find in terms of the form of the community and things like that. But the, the point was, they didn't, they didn't chalk it up to themselves, they didn't go and pat themselves on the back, they didn't say, yeah, we did it, we were so convincing, all those people got saved, and we managed to get our way out of prison. They went back to the one whom they knew had worked. Mm. And they went back to him and said, give us the strength, the power, the boldness to go work some more. And see, that, that's the difference between being a functional deist and being a God-fearer. Right. Is that when something happens... Who do we get the credit for? for? Yeah. Exactly. Whether yeah. good or bad, who do, we, who do we go to and who do we acknowledge it with? Yeah. I, uh, any other uh, any other passages that come to mind? Then I mean Acts four is obviously uh, huge in that. Well, Acts twelve also when Peter gets out, or he, this is one time he does go to prison and he gets out, and it says specifically in Acts twelve twelve that the people there were gathered together for prayer. Um, that's late in the night. The assumption there possibly is that they were praying for Peter. It's hard to know exactly what they were praying for, uh, but it seems to be with the flow of the text and everything that they were praying for Peter. And here was the answer. Mm -hmm. In their midst. I mean, this is... But the funny thing about that is, they didn't expect Peter to be there. They said, oh, it must be his ghost. 
It must be his ghost. In other words, it must be some apparition. And, you know, the little girl's like, no, 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 it's really Peter. I know it's Peter. So here they have the answer to their prayers, similar to the disciples when Jesus shows up after the resurrection. You know, whoa, wait a minute, wait a minute. This isn't exactly what happened. We weren't expecting this. We weren't expecting this. So I do think sometimes our prayers are answered and... and, uh, (laughs) Despite our expectations. Despite our expectations, (laughs) yes, exactly. The answer is in spite of us, not due to us. (laughs) Will God really do above all, all we could ask or think? Yeah. You know, one verse that comes to my mind, and I think this is probably the, the basis of every prayer meeting, is where two or more are gathered, uh, there I am in their midst. Uh, although the context of that verse, it's interesting, we often use that for a prayer meeting. Uh, the context of that verse, though, is the, is the corporate. Uh, it's in the context of church discipline, where you've gone to the brother and the brother didn't listen. You've gone with with another, two brothers have gone to the sinning brother and they haven't listened. And so then they're to be brought to the church. And then the, it, we're told there in Matthew 18 that the church then has the right to to decide whether they stay or go. To to issue judgment, to serve as a as a court, if you will, yeah. in in that circumstance. And then the very next verse is... For wherever two or more are gathered, in my name, there I am in their midst. So there's a, there's a judicial element there in which God is saying it's, the two or more is clearly a reference to the witnesses. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There's always to be two or more witnesses. Uh, I think back of Isaiah chapter 1 where God, which is I, God in the courtroom and God calling to witness heaven and earth, and these are his witnesses. Um, <laughs> and yet it still does carry over to the prayer meeting. In the sense that, as you said, Peter, and I, I think we need to go back to this because I think it's vital, prayer arises from a need. I think one of the things that drove home the necessity of prayer for me in my life was, was this phrase, prayer is dissatisfaction with the status quo. <laughs> prayer is dissatisfaction with the status quo. I'm not content with the way things are. <coughs> not, an, not an ungodly discontent. Yeah, we, but a godly uh, discontent. A godly discontent, exactly. And and I want to now go to the throne of grace and I'm going to say, God, this should not be. You're, Peter, you were talking about homosexuality and yeah. the, this agenda that uh, it seems like the church isn't even blinking. Yeah. yeah exactly. uh, and, and churches left, mainline churches left and right are just receiving them yeah. uh, wholeheartedly. Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't reach out to and love these people. You know, these are these are people whom God is calling to Himself as He is as He is murderers and thieves and everybody else, but these are people who are deep in sin. Corinthians says that says such were some of you, and you go back through that list, and boy, it's a nasty, ugly uh, list. Exactly. So we're not we're not saying these people can't be saved, and we're we're, we're putting up a wall, but at the same time, we need to be praying because it does. We do feel weak, and I think maybe that's one of the reasons we're not even blinking is because we feel like, well, I can't do anything about this. This is a political agenda. Church church can't solve a political agenda. But that's functional deism. That is. That's well, exactly yeah, right. and, I mean, frequently in my, in my prayers um, that I lead in my congregation, I, I frequently uh, find this phrase on my lips, Lord, this just seems so big that it seems pointless to pray about. And yet we know that, that you're the one who's, the, the heart of the king is, is in your hand and you turn it where you want and, and that these things are, we come to the one, and this is why it's interesting that Acts 4 prayer, uh, where they start is, you're the Lord of heaven and earth. And, and it, it, we have to have the right doctrine of God, if you will, 
that would inspire the kind of praying um, that that we need to do. It, it's it's funny because it uh, and the guys around the table here his, uh, affirm historic Presbyterianism, and our particular breed of theology sometimes is viewed as well. You know what? <laughs> I mean, you guys think God's just going to save people, so I mean, is it really important that you take the gospel to people? It's really important that you pray. I mean, God's going to save them, right? La- lazy boy theology. Lazy boy theology, and um, you know, I mean, God's going to save them after all. I mean, what's what's really the point? I mean. But for us, when we look at it and we say, how is God going to save them? And the way that God has chosen to save them, I've said this before my congregation before. I'm not sure if I've said this on a podcast, but I'll ask my congregation sometimes, talking to them about prayer. Would, Matt, your pastor have been saved if people had not prayed for me and proclaimed the gospel to me? And I say, no, he wouldn't have been. How could he have been? And that's not to affirm that God isn't going to save his people. It's to affirm that God's going to save his people through means. And mm-hmm. he's going to use the means of his gospel and the prayers of his people to bring his people to himself. And that's what we're passionate about. Um, and that's why we want to talk to you about this today. Because we think Spurgeon titled his book on prayer meetings, uh, Only a Prayer Meeting? Because that's how we think about it. Oh, well, a church having a prayer meeting. That's the most vital thing that we do other than to gather on Sunday morning. It's the most important other meeting than the regular Lord's Day gathering of his people because it's there that we ask the Lord to pour out on Sunday. Spurgeon's congregation would gather on Monday evening and they would pray in two directions. They would pray for fruit from the word preached the day before, fruit in the life of the pastor as he studied for the Sunday that was to come, and for people to come to hear the word and to have their lives transformed. There was also another prayer meeting in Spurgeon's church. I don't know if you know this about Spurgeon, but there was a prayer meeting that went on during the service. People prayed the whole time during the service. And Spurgeon affirmed that it was not his preaching. It was the fact that there were people in the boiler room of all places Mm. praying while he preached. Yeah, that's a great that's a great illustration he uses. Yeah, yeah, because he, he, although and he's a great preacher, pick up his preaching. You know, he's not. You know, you might have your quibbles with that. He was a powerful preacher, but he did not believe that the power rested in his preaching. He believed that the power rested with God, and for that reason, they had to beseech God to pour out His power. And that's what we see in Acts. That's what we see modeled in Acts, even if it's a little bit. We were talking before uh, before the podcast. We were talking about. Uh, our, our producer had uh, was listening to a fellow on the radio who was portraying, who was uh, explaining Calvinism, and we were we were lamenting the fact that so often Calvinism, when people describe Calvinism, they describe what we call hyper Calvinism. They describe uh, not only that you know Calvinism, we believe God saves sinners, that everything rests in God. Whereas Arminianism, which would be the opposite of Calvinism, we would say that it's uh, sinners save themselves by coming to God. So the, the, the emphasis rests in Arminianism rests upon the sinner, and uh, the emphasis in Calvinism rests upon God. Well, so often when people explain Calvinism, they talk about it, as I said earlier, they talk about it as lazy boy theology. They talk about it as if these, oh, those Calvinists, they just sit back in their chairs and wait for God to work. But in reality, the, the practical implications of Calvinism, there's a great little pamphlet by Al Martin 
called The Practical Implications of Calvinism. And in that booklet, he talks about the fact that, no, Calvinists are the ones who should be evangelizing, because Calvinists are the ones who actually have a God, believe in a God who works, who believe in a God who has the power to regenerate a fallen sinner's heart. Whereas in the Arminian view, what we're saying, what they're, what they are saying in the Arminian view is that man has the ability to save himself. Whereas the Calvinist says no man doesn't have that ability, but God does, and therefore we will evangelize, we will pray, we will be discontent and go to the throne of grace because we know there we have a God uh, who can do this very thing, something that none of us can do. I mean, we can plead with people all we want. We can have as many altar calls and as, as many verses of come as you are as, as we want, and that's not going to change somebody's heart unless God regenerates the heart. Matt, you were talking about the necessity of having a, that, this kind of good theology of who God is, and I was immediately thought of Psalm 139, where we read, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You understand my thought from afar. You scrutinize my path and my lying down. You are intimately acquainted with all my ways, even before there is a word on my tongue. Hmm. So, I mean, even before we come to prayer, I think of Daniel, who as he was praying, God was already sending the angel. Mm -hmm. Um, Even before there is a word on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you have known it. Now, does that mean we don't pray because God knows the words before? Absolutely not. Uh, look, look where David uh, goes here in Psalm 139. He says, you've enclosed me behind and before you've laid your hand on me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is too high. I cannot attain to it. For where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there... Your hand will lead me, and your right hand will lay hold of me. So ultimately what he ends up here with is that because God is so powerful, because God knows our hearts, because God knows what we're going to say before we can say it, therefore he will lead us to prayer, (laughs) to doing these things which are pleasing to him. I think that you could also say that the way that most of our churches operate not only would be as a sense of uh, functional deism, um, but we embrace much more of sort of an American uh, do-it-yourself, you-can-do-it sort of mentality. Well, just look Um, at the sermons that are being preached today. But look at the absence of the prayer meeting. It, now, it, and I'm not I'm critiquing every church that doesn't have a prayer meeting, but you have to ask yourself a question. How do you think God's going to work? I read John 15:5, and Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. To me, just the working out of that one verse would lead me not just to personal prayer, but to family prayer, to corporate prayer, to as much prayer as we could do. Because prayer is the expression, I'm incapable, but you want to do things through me in the world. You want to use me. You want to use me as a witness. You want to see people come to yourself. How do I express that? Express that with prayer. How does the congregation express it? Express it with prayer. That's how they live out the implication of that. You know, this is this is by no means an excuse because I, I too lament 
uh, the loss of the prayer meeting. Our church has had prayer meetings. Um, we have uh, our, all of our ladies gather once a week to pray. All of our men gather once a week, although it's not particularly to pray, although we do pray there. Um, but the thing that I lament is that we've tried to have an entire church prayer meeting in the middle of the week, and it, it hasn't worked. Hmm. And the reason, one of the key reasons it hasn't worked, and as I said, this is not an excuse, but it's something that I lament, is that our church is so, the the congregation of our church is so spread out. Mm. We have people coming an hour from an hour away, 45 minutes away. The great majority of our people come about 25 minutes to get here. Um, so there is a, a huge disjunct in the life of the body and it affects other other areas we were talking about the lack of fellowship that can be created by a church being so spread out now a lot of these people live together far away and so they can be getting together and so now what we're doing is working on getting community prayer meetings happening Mm -hmm. Um, although I have to say our biggest focus is we want to see our families praying together Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think that's been our focus the last year uh, even two, three years has been getting, seeing the importance of family worship, the importance of the families praying together. But prayer meetings will flow out of that. I think so. I think when people's, it, this sort of works from, from, not from bottom to top, but it flows from the personal and then out in the larger circles. I think when a person themselves um, grasps the gospel well and they sense their utter dependence upon Christ, then they're driven, if it's a guy, he's a leader of the family, he's driven to pray with his wife and to say, we're utterly desperate that if our marriage is going to be uh, a reflection of Christ in his church, we're utterly desperate as a husband and wife uh, upon the work of the Spirit in us in order to be that kind of witness. We're utterly desperate. Hey, you kids, come with us. We're, we're utterly desperate as a family to show forth this, uh, this wonderful uh, relational God in the working of a covenant family. And you get these covenant families together and they go, hey, we're, we're utterly dependent that we have any impact in our community at all. See, it's these desperate people who recognize their absolute dependence. And it, it ought to be organic. As individuals in our churches grasp the gospel deeply and they see their utter dependence, it ought to flow from there. But we live in a nation, Matt that is not dependent on anybody. Who, me? <laughs> see my bootstraps? I, I, I do, mean, do you see my bootstraps? I right? see your you bootstraps. See bootstraps? They're, they're nice and tight, those bootstraps. I didn't know anybody wore bootstraps. How, where do you get them, Rainbow? <laughs> <laughs> um, the, Matt, we, we live in a society where we are just fed through the media. We were just fed over and over through the media, and I think it's absorbed into the church. I think the church is bought into this. You well, can you do it. Well, and what's unfortunate, and I, I don't hammer my congregation on this, but I bring it to their attention, is that many of us, and I don't want to go too far afield, but I'll just offer this comment. Many of us spend some of our radio listening, listening to people politically on the radio, commentators and people whose political viewpoints we agree with, but whose theology rots. Hmm. And they... And and they influence us, and they form our worldview. And we sometimes it's very easy to take what we hear works as a personal businessman that I can pull myself up and I can do very well and I can make myself and, you know, even if I've had past failures and do all this kind of stuff, and import it over into spiritual life very easily if we let this be a forming influence in us. And so that we... Just think, well, you know, if I do the right things, it's, it's 
what's going to happen when it's in an utterly different economy. And we lose that. It's not an economy of desperation. Exactly. Which is which is a, a word you've been using, which I yeah. think we need to emphasize. You know, I, I grew up going to public schools. I think I think all of us grew up going to public schools. Mm-hmm. You remember the classes, Believe and Achieve? Mm-hmm. I mean, we all had those leadership classes that they made all they made us take. You know, if if you just believe, you can achieve. If you just you know, if you just set you your mind do, to you it, you can do anything, Sean. If you put your mind to it's, it, it's the it's the American dream, and the American dream is a, is a joke, in the sense that the American dream says that I, in and of myself, or with the help of my government, can achieve everything I ever wanted. And the way that comes out in the church is well. If you use this methodology, mm-hmm. if 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 you're if these are the kinds of things you're involved with, if this is the kind of music you use, if these are the kinds of things you talk about in Sunday morning sermons, and the focus, and some of that can be helpful. You got to be sensitive to the people that are there. Even our catechism talks about preaching that's suited to the capacity of the hearers. There's there's things to consider as you're preaching the word about the people that are in the pew that ought to be in your mind. But that's not to say that they set the agenda God does. And he says, you're incapable of doing this. And our prayer life shows whether we think we're capable or whether we think we're incapable. Which it's important that you compare their methodology with desperation. Because I think it could be very easy for someone to hear this podcast and say, oh, I want to turn my church around. I need to have a prayer meeting. Good point. It, it's not going to work that way. God has got to bring you to your knees, and and God will work. And oftentimes, it's when God brings us to our knees that it's a sign that God is reviving us, personally and corporately. Yeah, yeah. A great example of that dependence thing is if you watch the end of the survivors when the guy gets kicked off or the girl gets kicked off they always come they always come up there you know after they've been voted off the island or whatever and they're saying we always catch the end because we watch the show that comes on after it so we never see the whole show but we see the end these people come up there like i learned so much about myself i just learned how strong i was and how i just need to believe in myself and julie and i it's my wife we just we just we run to the bathroom and and hurl in the toilet because it's awful it's awful but this is what you hear <laughs> you, you you want to yell at the TV and go, but you just got kicked off, yeah, buddy. Yeah, but, and that's just so <laughs> typical, just believing yourself. I was going to, um, I think a great illustration, this is an, I don't know, I mean, interpretations of Revelation are as many as the sand on the seashore, so I don't necessarily want to get that. I see Revelation liturgically as this is John on the Lord's Day, and this. so I would interpret this more as liturgical corporate prayer. But anyway, this is a good principle for prayer and I'll just read it this is from Revelation chapter 8 when he opened the seventh seal there was silence in heaven for about half an hour and I saw the seven angels who stand before God and to them were given seven trumpets then another angel having a golden censer came and stood at the altar he was given much incense that he should offer it with the prayers of all the saints upon the golden altar which was before the throne and the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints ascended before God from the angel's hand then the angel took the censer filled it with fire from the altar and threw it to the earth and there were noises thunderings lightnings and an earthquake and so what you have here is just really all these images piling together here but one thing you have here is you have prayer mixed with the fire of god thrown back down to earth okay this is kind of what's going on here and i think often our view of prayer is such that we do not believe it really is going to change anything and here in the book hmm. of revelation the fire when it is sanctified 
or the prayer when it's sanctified by the fire of God from the altar is leads to these seven trumpets it leads to this judgment and this destruction and it's really quite an amazing passage and if you go back to the incense in the Old Testament what that means that'll help fill that out a little more but again just the fact that we don't think prayer actually is going to accomplish anything and one quick other note going back to what you said Matt if you go to Solomon's prayer at the dedication of the temple he preaches for like five verses and prays for like 40 so I mean, if you want to do the word in prayer there he has a real long prayer of dedication for the temple which is just unbelievable that's in uh, 1 Kings 8 an unbelievable prayer and uh, just talking all about the covenant and what God will do for his people and it's pretty amazing but a really short sermon and a really long prayer hmm. have you guys noticed the disappearance of the pastoral prayer in oh, churches yeah. I mean maybe some of you listening have, have seen this where it used to be um, I know sometimes some churches they would do it before the sermon some they would do it after the sermon but the pastor would pray would lead the congregation in prayer for 15 20 minutes sometimes and now I mean we're lucky we're lucky for three or four in in most in most pastoral prayers and yet as the pastor and so this is for all you pastors who are listening is as the pastor you're to be leading your people in prayer you're to you're to show them in corporate worship their desperation and the necessity of prayer and so if you've gotten caught up in that and again this is not methodology to say if you just pray longer you're going to lead your people to be prayers but you need to think about that and say, how are we using prayer as a corporate means of grace in such a way that it's leading people to think how desperately they need that as an individual means of grace? And that's that's one of those ties we've often asked that question on this podcast is how do the uh, corporate ordinary means relate to the private means of grace? And that's one of them, is that the corporate means of grace drive us to the personal Absolutely. Means of grace. Yeah. Hopefully, they model it. Yes, they model it. It's interesting. Um, Sean and I have a um, associate friend uh, who's planting a church in South Carolina and um, beginning a new work there. Actually, if you can believe it, a, a county, an entire county in South Carolina, without a conservative Presbyterian church, which is just amazing to me. But uh, where he started, he's about a year into it now, and where he started. One of the first things he did with the group of people that began to gather was to have a weekly prayer meeting. And what, what we're talking about is a, a mentor that Sean and I had in California uh, talked about a church that moves forward on its knees. Is a church that doesn't do prayer as though it's something to be done, but a church that's about prayer. A church that recognizes uh, that this is the most vital thing that we can do if we want to be a force in the community because we unleash the power of God as we pray and proclaim. One of the most powerful verses for me in all of the Gospels <laughs> is Jesus when he says uh, to those who come to him and say, Lord, did we not do all these wonderful things in your name? He says, depart from me, I never knew you. The idea that there are people who are masquerading as Christians and maybe I'm one of them you know I, I have to ask myself that question honestly when I read the passage that could I be simply masquerading doing the right things as a pastor you know even even great things as a pastor and yet not 
knowing Jesus in the personal way. And I think prayer is one of the ways that we check ourselves. Hmm. That we look at our lives and we say, you know what, I'm not praying much. Which is a real good sign that I'm not depending on my relationship with Christ. Which is a real good sign that maybe I don't know Christ and maybe I need to come back around and, and think about this again. And I'm not saying... I, I'm not saying that we must continually doubt, but I'm saying that doubt can be a wonderful tool of God to bring us back to prayer mm. and to bring us back to obedience and to bring us back to uh, walking in his ways. Part of the reason we don't uh, pray as much as I don't think we pray, well, maybe going back a little bit more, part of the reason our prayers are not as effective as, they sh- as we want them to be is we don't pray the right things. The catechism and the confessions make this distinction between the lawful and unlawful prayer. What's lawful prayer? Well, it doesn't go into a real long list of what lawful prayer is, but it does talk about the fact, I think they're pointing to the scriptures. And one of the great losses in our understanding of prayer is the loss of the Psalms. Mm. That's one of the great losses. The Psalms are were tools used, given by God, to teach people how to sing and how to pray and how to worship God in their corporate. And in, in all kinds of circumstances, all kinds whatever, of, whatever you face in life. Absolutely. Like Psalm 139, you know, is a good example. Psalm 51, obviously. Psalm chapter 2 would be a good one for us to, to pray through on a very frequent basis, given the condition of our country that we're in today. You know, Psalm 23, all those, we make use of them, but because, we haven't, because they're not our lifeblood, because we haven't been taught them as well as we should in corporate or in private settings, then a lot of times we come to prayer and we stammer. And, we, and our prayers are, are, are impotent because of that. And one thing you learn is you go throughout Scripture, whether you go to Daniel 9, Ezra 9, Nehemiah 9, Hezekiah's prayer, Solomon's prayer on the temple, is it's always tied back into the Word. It's always tied back into what God has done, what His promises are, who He is. Lord of heaven and earth, taken directly maybe from Psalm 24. I don't know, you know, but could certainly be taken directly from there. And obviously in that, what was that, chapter 4 you were saying there, Matt, they mentioned several other scripture passages. Well, they mentioned Psalm 2. Psalm, Psalm 2. By the nation's race. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And yeah, so a rage. lot of times our prayers are impotent simply because we've abandoned the very things we should be praying, and that's the scriptures. Well, now that raises the question then, what do we pray for? What are some of the things that we need to be, I, you know, somebody comes along and they say, okay, I agree, we should have a corporate prayer meeting, we should have groups of people getting together and praying, um, we should have the whole church. Well, obviously the whole church gets together to pray on on Sunday, but we can be having prayer meetings at other times during the week, and we should. Uh, you know, somebody says, I, I believe we should pray. Now, what should I pray for? Well, I think that the pattern prayer that Jesus gives us at least gives us the sketch of the kinds of things that corporate prayer, whether it be in a congregational setting or in a, um, in a, a prayer meeting setting, the kinds of things that we ought to be praying about. We ought to be praying that the glory of the Lord would be extended, that his kingdom would come, uh, that, that we and the people in our congregation would be, would be turned from sin, kept from temptation, uh, that we'd be provided for. Um, I think, I- at least in our congregation, the, the prayer meeting that we do once a month, uh, we focus almost exclusively um, on, we follow the, the little simple acts pattern that maybe you learn as a young disciple of Christ. We, we, the, follow, the pattern that we have for an hour of prayer is we adore God, uh, we confess our unworthiness again that he might hear us, we thank him for what he's already done, and then we ask him to do more. Very simple, not complex at all, but we keep it focused. Um, we don't, in our prayer meeting, I'm not saying you couldn't do this, we don't particularly pray for unhealthy people. We do that every Sunday. 
in our prayer meeting at least, uh, and I like the, the passion of, uh, of Mr. Hulse here and the quote that, that Sean read, uh, we spend a lot of time praying about the kingdom. Uh, it's interesting. If you go through, and you can do this study, we don't have time to do it this, in this podcast, but if you go through, read in Paul's epistles the kinds of things that he asks for prayer for. And you get the pulse of what it is that our prayer meetings ought to be about. I'll give you a hint. He prays, asks for prayer, that he might be bold, just like an Acts 4. And he prays, an apostle prays, that he might proclaim the gospel clearly, which is a mystery to me. The one who's teaching us the gospel, Apostle Paul, prays that he might proclaim it clearly. To, to piggyback on that, go and look at the, the begin. Those are often at the end of the epistles, the, yeah. the things Mass talked about. But go look at the beginning of the epistles, and you'll see the things he's praying for the people, the things that uh, Paul's mm-hmm, praying. Mm-hmm. I always give thanks for you, always, and making mention of you in my prayers. You know, I, I think of Thessalonians comes to mind. There's a couple other epistles in there. First Thessalonians is the one that strikes me. But at the beginning, you have Paul's prayers and what he's praying for the people. And then at the end, and this is especially one Matt brings up, is almost universal in the Pauline epistles, especially the, the uh, you know, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians throughout there. I don't think it's in Galatians, but in the others it is, that Paul is constantly exhorting them to pray for him. Yep. And uh, in particular, open a door open, for boldness, yeah, fearlessly, exactly. yeah. with clarity. He's very focused on the gospel and the expansion of it. And I think that that's... Uh, that's what we depend upon the Lord for. We, we think that He's the one who opens hearts, and so we got to ask Him to. Um, and so that that's that's where we put the focus. Doesn't mean that everybody's got to be that way, but I think that that's 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 the, at least you've got to exhibit the pattern that Jesus gives us. How about prayer for the leaders of the church? Do the leaders of the church need prayer? They're beyond prayer. <laughs> <laughs> There's no hope left for us. <laughs> Well, certainly if Paul was an apostle, yeah. ask for prayer. Certainly, I'm going to preach this week that Jesus uh, sends off his disciples after feeding the 5,000 and doesn't immediately go show himself more to his disciples by walking on the water, but first goes away and prays. So if the head of the church and the apostles of the church needed prayer and they asked for it, uh, certainly we ought to have prayer. Absolutely. In our bulletin each week, it, before we're going to have an elders meeting, uh, we put every time before we have an elders meeting a request that the people pray for us. One other type of prayer that isn't uh, maybe brought up so much, but if you think about the songs, I think of Hannah's song, First Samuel chapter 2, Mary's mm-hmm. Magnificat, Simeon's song, Miriam's song, uh, Mary Mo- Moses' song, Exodus 15. You know, all those songs... Often we do think of prayer as supplication, those types of things. But there, and what often these words are recounting of what God had done and expectation of what God would do mm. in those prayers. Uh, and I just think we need more of that. We need more Marys and Hannahs and Miriams and these other and Simeons and Annas and those people who did those different things, uh, just bursting into song, song that is is so permeated with the word. That it that it's just it flows out of them, and I think that's amazing. I think Mary's Magnificat. Someone went through that and showed all the allusions to the Old Testament in hmm. there to show that Jesus was raised in a home that was bathed in the Word, hmm. and that Mary was bathed in the Word. This was something she knew. Now maybe it was divine revelation. I don't know. Possibly. I I, I don't want to necessarily get there, but obviously we need more of that type of of prayer. We need so, 
when we come to the Thanksgiving part, it needs to be joyous, you know. Mm-hmm. It needs to be Psalm 150 joyous, you know. Sometimes mm-hmm. just really, I mean, we don't want to get dancing or slain in the spirit or anything like that. I'm not advocating that. But I am saying we should look at those things as well. And that's where the Psalms can help us round out the 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 aspect of prayer by giving us such a variety of prayers that point to a lot of different uh, situations that arise in the life of the church and in the life of individuals. You know, you know, I hear so much, and I, I don't want to get on to the whole issue of music here, but related to what you said, it seems people in Scripture express themselves in in song prayers. Mm. So often. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And yet today the thing I hear so much is, oh, you don't want to hear me sing, buddy. You know, we work, you know, our, we work with the men in our church, and so often you, you, you always get the guys yeah. who say, <laughs> say you, you don't, I'm, you know, I'm a, I'm a tenor. It sounds better when I'm 10 or 12 miles away. <laughs> I'm a baritone. You can barely bear the tone. Uh, and, and these guys are saying these things, and yet we're put to shame, I think, by our kids. Any of you who have kids who are being raised in a Christian home, who are you're teaching them to sing, and the uh, and they're singing in church, you you know what I mean. You're you're driving along, and uh, you're driving along in the car, and you know just you just go along, and all of a sudden from the back seat you hear your this little you know the two year old going, "Oh my Lord, you are good," and "Oh my Lord," and they're making it up. And you go, they get prayer in a way that we as adults have lost it. They get, it's this spontaneous, all of a sudden, this child in the backseat just felt like praising God. And we should be, we should be completely put to shame by the two-year-old, you know? <laughs> you know? That yeah. two-year-old should be, be calling every, every single one of us to prayer. We talked about this, I, I can't remember if we've talked about it here during the podcast or uh, beforehand, Prayer. We pray because we're in the middle of a battle, mm-hmm. and maybe we should address that. That life, life is war. Yeah, um, or the Christian uh, Arch, life is Ar- war. Archie Parrish, who's wonderful on prayer, you can pick up his works. Just look on Amazon. He has a <laughs> ministry called Serve International uh, out of Atlanta, and uh, he quotes uh, John Piper uh, and says that uh, Piper says. Um, that you'll never know what prayer is for until you realize that life is war. You'll never know what prayer is for until you realize that life is war. So if, if your basic stance in the Christian life is, I can do it, and that Christianity is something that I can get done, the spreading the gospel is something that I get done, um, that, that's possible for me to do, so I just need to go do it. Just follow the Nike commercial and just do it. Um, then you will. And you'll be fairly fruitless because you'll not recognize two things. One is that there's a battle that you're in that's not with flesh and blood. You can't transact to the level that you can if you're a businessman or something like that trying to start a business. It's not doesn't exist at that level. And the other thing is that it's a battle that you're in that you're absolutely, absolutely, positively dependent. And you get this battle sense frequently all through Paul's writing. That what he, the way he envisions the Christian life is it's training for war. Those are the kinds of words that he uses. But especially in Ephesians 6, we find him talking about this armor of God, and we don't have time to go through all of that. But one of the things that he does uh, is uh, he said, all the way at the end of this, 
after he talks about taking the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word, uh, he says, with all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. And with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. And then he asks for prayer on his behalf, uh, that he would uh, that he would have the, the wisdom to speak, to make known the mystery of the gospel with boldness. So the whole analogy, the whole context that he gives for prayer is the fact that you're in the midst of a battle in which you're incapable to win. To win against your own flesh, to win in your own family, to win uh, in your church, to win in the world with the gospel. And so we've got to get a better sense uh, of, our, of our dependence. It does, in some sense, go back to our own understanding of the gospel. Do we realize how dependent we are upon Christ? And does that, personally, for my own salvation, do I see my utter dependence? And do I keep that utter dependence? Or, as Jerry Bridges put it, do I think that grace is just for beginners? Because if I realize that grace is not just for beginners, but I increase in my knowledge of how dependent I actually am, then it flows forth because I see the battle that's before me, and I see the weapons that I have, and they're nothing. And I say, Lord, you're going to have to work here. Do you mean to tell us, Matt, we don't even have the power to pray on our own? Somebody said, and I don't know who it is, that if you have a desire to pray, more than likely it didn't come from you. Now, now I do think that there's a sense in which we're made in God's image, we're made for a relationship for him. Uh, There are no atheists in foxholes. That we turn to prayer, uh, even if we're not a believer, because we sense that we're made for a relationship with God. Yes. Um, but I'm saying an authentic, desperate prayer, one that's, that, that begins, that has the tenor of God be merciful to me, a sinner, is spirit-initiated. You know, the, it's important that you bring out that character of, of the one who is praying. Hmm. Uh, because so often prayer meetings can turn into gossip sessions. Or to show-off sessions. Or show-off sessions. Look how good a prayer I am. Versus yeah, your two-year-old who just bears their heart and God loves that more. The widow with the two pennies. Exactly. Bears her heart, bears her life, everybody knows. Versus the Pharisee who's you know swaggering up to the box with a big, with a big chunk. <laughs> right? Yeah. Jesus, this is the passion of Hebrews. This is the passion of the book of Hebrews, that you can come because of Christ and just bear your heart. Just just say it. Say it plainly. That's what Hebrews talks about in terms of prayer. You can just come up and just say, I need mercy and grace to do this. Oh, yeah. And that's it. You know, some of the best prayer meetings I've ever been to were those where everybody in the meeting had suffered from cancer or loss of a job or something. Because every one of them saw, again, we go back to this word, their dependence. Yeah. Their absolute dependence, and and maybe that's that's the key is humility. Mm. Is that if we're going to be coming for the sake of bowing our knee before the Father, we've got to have humility, and we only understand that humility if we understand Christ. Mm. If 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 our focus has been on the cross, and that Christ, <clears throat> excuse me, had to humble Himself so that we might be saved, are we willing to humble ourselves so that others might be saved? Yeah. I was going to say one thing back to what Matt said about the warfare imagery. This is why we pray the word. Mm. This is why we pray the word because the word is the sword. And again, the reason why often our prayers are impotent is because we're not praying the word. One one guy said, Satan wants to chop off our head and we're singing praise ditties. And I don't want to get in the whole praise <laughs> thing. But the bottom line is the Psalms... 
you can you can stop the sword with the Psalms. You can stop the sword with the John 17. You can stop the sword with Paul's prayers. In other words, get back to praying the Word and what the Word commands us to do. I think often the reason we lose the battle is we're praying for things that just well up out of our own hearts and don't have any real direction. And Calvin said our hearts are just idle factories. They just fester in there, you know. And if we don't have the Word to direct us what to do in our prayers, we just go off in all sorts of skewered directions. And so going back to the warfare thing, pray the word, pray the word publicly, sing it publicly in corporate setting, but also pray it privately and sing it privately. Our, our esteemed producer here who never gets the focus put on because he doesn't talk, unlike Stu on Glenn Beck's show, um, <laughs> I think that just handed me a Bible verse that I think is great. You know, we have the word to direct us, but we also have, a, you know, sometimes uh, people in our circles get a little wiggy about ministry of the spirit, but we do have this the living third person of the Trinity within us um, who has the passion of God has the passions of the word because he's the one who inspired that word and uh, we have this this promise you might be here and you might say you're a pastor or, or you're, a, you're a leader in a church or you're, you're someone trying to lead a family and you're going I don't even know where to start nobody's taught me how to pray and there's a confidence that we have that even in our desperateness um, Romans uh, this is 8 to 26 in the same way the spirit also helps our weakness for we do not know how to pray as we should but the spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words is that um, prayer is not this thing you have to get perfect at. Prayer is this thing that you do because you recognize that you're desperate. And part of your desperateness might be, Lord, I don't even know how to pray. Teach me. One last shot here, because Sean's going to close us up here, and I think in a second. Um, Somebody, the Korean church is known uh, for a passionate, long, frequent corporate prayer meetings. Somebody once asked them, what's the secret? How, how do mm-hmm. we how do we get it? <laughs> right? Give us some method. Give us that. Give us about. I want twelve steps. No and less. And here's what a Korean pastor said. He said, "Here's the problem with you Americans. You never pray about your praying. Maybe that's the place that I need to start. Maybe that's the place that you need to start if you're listening, just to pray about your praying. Which is a great place to end. Is where we begin." Is, is we knew need to start going to God w- desperate that he would make us uh, those, those who are praying well we thank you for joining us today on Ordinary Means uh, for the podcast uh, and as we go from this place uh, we pray that we do pray that the Lord would make us prayers and would make you prayers and would, make, would fill his church uh, with prayerfulness as we seek his presence, as, as we seek his grace uh, by his means that he's designed. Uh, may the Lord bless you and keep you. Mm-hmm.